I love Indiana. I love the weather in Indiana. As a kid, um, hold on a second. <laughs> Remember those things we talked about last week, what, those 10,000 thoughts? What were you thinking? <laughs> um, as a kid, I, I used to love snow globes, liked them a lot, and uh, I always wish I could get inside of one. I, I think I've gotten that wish this winter. And uh, I'm grateful for that, by the way. Uh, it, was, it was gorgeous out this morning. I feel like I've been inside of this globe all winter long. And today, I really encourage you to be the you that you were meant to be and not another you. And sometimes it's challenging as we see people who can do things better than us. Um, and it doesn't matter what you're doing. There's always someone who can do it better. And if we're not careful, um, we want to become that person instead of the person God wants us to be and be the best that we can be. I think the skit uh, that you're about to watch, you'll find moments in this skit with the skit guys that will uh, hit hard um, and really uh, challenge you. So, so watch this. Be the you you're meant to be. Well, I don't remember which one of us came first. Well, that's like asking which came first, the chicken or the egg. egg. Salad. <laughs> you see what you did there? Yeah. I finished your sentence. sentence. Sometimes it's like we're in stereo. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> when you've been friends as long as we have. You tend to lose yourself just a little bit. Some people actually think we're twins. Thank, Thank you. you. But you're not. We need help. This is Dan Dunkelman. Here's what the girls would call a catch. I, however, am what the girls would call a suckerfish. So I see aside Dan's life to find out what made him so cool, right? Some people would call this stalking. I refer to it as good investigative reporting. I found out that Dan was simply trying to be like Tim the Twerker and Tone. So I looked into Tim's life, and guess what I found out? Tim was trying to be like Mark Rutherford. I looked into Mark Rutherford, and guess who he was trying to be like? Moi. Do you see this crazy circle of life I'm living in? Nobody is being who they were created to be. It's insanity. On the flip side, it seems that the coolest guy in school was invariably trying to be like me. <laughs> Who's the sucker fish now? I have a total great sense of self. That's a lie. I don't even know my own social security number. I do. It's 15. I'll tell you this, though. I know who I am. Another lie. Woke up in the middle of the night, looked in the mirror, screamed like a girl because I thought I was being robbed. But I'll tell you this. I'm not into image. What? Well, that's a lie. This whole thing right here, this whole pony show, I stole it from Burt Reynolds. This right here, not even my real hair. Yep, bald as a bat. How do you like me now? No, seriously, how do you like me now? I'm a dad. Um, <laughs> I won't bore you with the pictures, but uh, I've been thinking about that question, you know, uh, who am I? And um, I don't know. Yeah, I can't really answer it. It's kind of sad, huh? My dad, when I was a kid, um, he always wanted me to play sports. And I have two left feet, you know. But I tried. I really did. And uh, there's, there's nothing more unsettling for a kid than to look out on the stands and see a uh, disappointed dad. I guess I just wouldn't want he wanted. But then I, uh, I figured it out. I have a heavenly father who, <laughs> he can't be disappointed in me. He made me the way I am. He gave me two left feet. So I guess he just didn't want me to play sports or dance. We know who we are. We are those people in your schools, your neighborhoods, your jobs, even social media that's going to put you in your place. That's right. 
It's got a lot further than just wanting your lunch money. We control your fears. We're like a virus that you can't run away from. <laughs> we own you. <laughs> Some would say that you uh, tear down others because you have such a low image of yourself. And uh, you're, you know, so insecure of being who God made you to be that it's easy to pick on the weak. You need to stop it. Well, in, in reality... Some would say that you are the weak ones. You choose to stop. You know, hurt people tend to hurt people. It's like you. It's like you're reading my mail. I need you to leave us alone, all right? You're bullying us now, all right? Just, just pin it off, pin it off. Yeah, this isn't fair. I need a hug. I need a hug right now. There's a story about the 10-foot wall of life, and some people just seem to jump over it so effortlessly. Whether it's their money, their reputation, their looks, they just seem to jump right over it. Not me. I've had to climb that wall brick by brick, and if I'm to be honest, at some point, I just stopped climbing. I just relented just to sit at the wall and make fun of people that would climb or just jump over it. So when you ask me the question, who do I think I am? I'm nothing. I've been nothing for a really long time. And I've told myself that for so long I really believe it. Who do you believe you are? Who are you trying to be? When you walk through your daily routines of life, when you enter the hallways of your school, when you punch in the workplace, when you walk on the basketball court or the baseball diamond or the volleyball court or the football field, who are you trying to be? When you look at other marriages, what are you comparing yours to? When you look at husbands, other husbands, other wives, who do you want to be? You see, the answer to that question directly affects the person that you will become. I think it comes back to a trust issue with God. Do we trust God enough to say from the foundation of the world that he would allow us to be born with two left feet? Do we trust God enough to believe that he knows what's best for us? That we'll never be like him or her or I'll never preach like Andy Stanley or Stephen Furtick or Perry Noble or you name the list. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with being the person that Christ has made you to be and not being another you? Do you find yourselves comparing your life to someone else's life? Do things like jealousy and envy creep into your heart because you're not like them. Today, we will see three men who have an opportunity to get the same position. Three men. One has this position that the other two have an opportunity to get. One is king. The next in line is supposed to be the king to be. The next in line is far away in some field looking at sheep and not even on the radar screen yet. What you'll find is this. This man who is king is scared of that man who isn't king yet but will become king because someone told him. And this man who is supposed to be the next in line and king is going to get skipped over by this man and become king. But you know what? He's okay with that. 
And so you'll see this man struggling, knowing that he's going to be the next king. He's already been told he's going to be king, and his struggle will be, this is what I've been made to be. Do I wait upon the Lord and allow that to happen? Do, or do I push through, knock the king out, and become king now? You see, sometimes this spot is as difficult as being in that spot. And sometimes that spot is the worst of all of them. So three men. One is king. His name is Saul. Has a son named Jonathan, who's supposed to be next in line to be king. And on the exterior out in this pasture is another man by the name of David who was anointed to be king, and the king doesn't like it. Grab your Bibles, and let's go on a journey of these three men's lives and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will put one in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, take this Bible home with you. It's a gift from Grace Community Church. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Three men, Saul, who's king, Jonathan, the son of Saul, who is supposed to be king next, David, who's not related to Jonathan or Saul, but is appointed to become the next king. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. Stand with me and we'll read it together. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 13. Let's read it together out loud. Ready, read. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. Let me have a seat. In becoming the you that you're meant to be and not another you, here's a a reality that all of us have to come to grips with. There will always be someone that can do it better than you or that's better than you. It, it is reality. It doesn't mean that you give up and it doesn't mean you become the best version of yourself, but there will always be someone who can do it better than you. Even after you've given your very best to that thing, even after you think it's pretty special, even after you look at it and you think, man, that is as good as I can do and, 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 and you're satisfied with that. That's where we should resolve ourselves to live. Be satisfied with giving our best, living up to the potential that's in us, and working as hard as we can to become the person that God wants us to be. But there will always be someone who can do it better than you. David steps out of the scenes because he had just killed Goliath. And by the way, which was pretty miraculous, he killed the giant. We know the story. He took five stones and he killed the giant. And because of that, he got the attention of the king, who is Saul. He got the attention of him. And he said, whose son is this? Brings him in, allows him to live in his palace and serve on his team. What should have been a win-win situation soon becomes an envious, jealous king of this person who now gets more attention than he is getting. Instead of looking at, I made my team stronger, he sees it as a threat to his kingdom. There will always be someone who can do it better than you. We know from the account in 1 Samuel 17 
that when David went to go fight Goliath, Saul said, hey, before you go out, I want you to put on my armor. I want you to put on my armor. And so he had David come in and he put on this gear, basically this battle gear that was too big for him. David basically tells him, I'm not gone in the power of the armor. I'm going in the power of God. He says, I don't need this. Saul, I believe, was threatened by that because there was a part of him, I believe, that Saul, his armor, he saw his, his protection come in the armor. Because he wasn't relying solely upon God, he thought he could be protected. David could be protected if he put the armor on. However, David says, I'm going in the battle of the Lord. The, the victory is God. The battle is the Lord. So he walked out without this protective armor with five smooth stones. We know the story. He hits Goliath in the head and he kills him. And he doesn't do it in the power of something in the flesh. He does it in the power of the Lord. So in light of that, David doesn't get the recognition he needs. In fact, Goliath himself sees David, who comes to the battlefield, and he sees him. He says, what, what do you think I am, a dog that somehow that you would send a boy out to fight me? Even Goliath, he was more interested in what was being written about him or what be said about him. So he looks at this little David, and he says, why would you send a boy out here? I mean, that's not even going to make the Jerusalem front page news tomorrow. And so he didn't even want to fight David. He saw him as a nuisance and not a threat. And so you have this story, David walks out, and he kills Goliath. Goliath doesn't like this little boy coming. He thinks it's a threat to his character and his identity. Meanwhile, after this is taking place, Saul says, whose son is this? It meant a lot during this time that you would figure out who the son of, who the father of the son was. And so Abner didn't know who the son was. And so he asked, finally got the point. This is Jesse's son. Jesse is the father of David. And so he invites David in, into his palace. And he, in talking to him, he finds out who he is. What we don't know is as important as what we do know. Every time I read this account, and again this week when I read this account, I'm always intrigued that we know David's name. But there were other sons of Jesse. By the way, how many of you could name the names of Jesse's other sons? How many of you could just rattle off the names of the other sons who had the same opportunity because Goliath came up and said day after day, and he would blaspheme the God of Israel. And day after day, he invited someone to come out and battle against him. So day after day, David's brothers had the same opportunity to stand and fight Goliath. Yet they didn't. And because they didn't, they didn't put themselves in position of gaining favor of the king. And had they, who's to know? Maybe they would be the next king of Israel. When the opportunity presented itself, only one of the brothers said, I'm going to step out. Why? Because he was placing his value and his strength in God. Pull away from that. With that being said, I often wonder this when I think about opportunities as they present themselves. How many people are on the fringes? The only opportunity they get is finally to step on the scene because one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight other people had the opportunity presented, but they, they, they didn't have the courage to step out. And because this guy or this gal has the courage, they win the victory of one, two, three, four five, six, seven, eight other people. You see, David ultimately won the victory that should have been given, number one, probably to Saul and to his own brothers. His brothers get jealous of him because he gets this victory. And I often say, well, wait a minute, you had your chance. Same God, same enemy, same stones in the brook. You had an opportunity. And I often wonder when I read this account, I wonder how many times that we have given our victory, which was meant for us, passed it on to someone else because we didn't have the courage to step out when God called our name in that opportunity. So you have these three people, Saul, who's king, Jonathan, who's the son, and David, who is there. Just for the record, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and look at verse 13. Just for the record, in the midst of the David and Goliath story, 
we read this. Look at chapter 17 and verse 12 and 13. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named who? Jesse. That's the father. Who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. How many of you could name eight sons of Jesse? Then it says this, just for the record. The firstborn was Eliab. The second was Abinadab. We can't even say the name. And the third was Shammah. Isn't it interesting? David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. I often wonder. I don't know the answer to this. Why is it that we don't know Eliab? Why is it we don't know? We can't even pronounce Abinadab. Why is it that we don't know the name of Shammah? Could they have been King Shammah? Could they have been King Eliab? Could they have been King Abinadab? We'll never know that, but here's what I do know. The opportunity was presented to the same brothers that was presented to David. And because they refused to step out in battle, they didn't receive the accolades or the victory that could have been theirs. I wonder how often we bypass the opportunities that God has given us in victories that were in store because of fear, because of we don't know who we are in Christ, and someone else gets our victory. So, fast forward. David has the ear of the king because he just killed Goliath. Look at chapter 18 again. Look at verses 1 and 3. After David had finished talking with Saul... Look what it says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Keep in mind here, this is starting out pretty good for Saul. David should not be a threat to him at all. He shouldn't be a threat at all because he just made his team, he just made his army, he just made his men, he just made his warriors stronger. Now not only is he able to lead, but he has this warrior called David who who has just killed the giant and now people believe in him and now he's part of his team. Just a little sidebar here. I think as a leader, I think as a business, I think as a school, I think as any place that you go where there's leadership involved, you should always hire people who can do things better than you can because it makes a stronger team. You see, the minute you look at it and say, well, I can't hire him or hire her, she can do that better, there's, this, there's something about your identity. You have a struggle with your identity. You're saying, I'm not secure in who I am in Christ because I'm threatened that someone can do it better than I can. I have staff, I have teammates, that there are areas, man, they knock it out of the park and I can barely swing the bat. But I'm grateful to have them because they make the team stronger. Let me give you an example. One of the very first cars I owned, in fact, the first car I owned was a 66 Chevy Deuce. It was a sweet car, 283 Powerglide transmission. And some of you don't have any idea what that means, but those who understand cars, that was a sweet car. However, it was cancer-ridden, had big holes in it. You know, it, it looked... It looked like it belonged on a dump. And so I decided as a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old that I would bring it back to life. And so I spent about a year or so in my garage out back when I was a 15, 16-year-old bringing this Nova back to life. I mean, I, 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 I sanded it. I cut out rust. I put sheet metal in, and, and I, I put plaster body putty on it. And, and it finally got to the point where we were contemplating, actually, my stepfather and I sending it to the paint shop or we would paint it. So we made the horrible decision to paint it ourselves. So we're spraying this car and it was, you know, after it got done, it was the color that we wanted and um, it it, it was brown. And I mean, I thought it looked really good. I thought, and I was, you know, I was excited, and I you know, brought my mom out. You know, mom's, that looks, that's awesome, Jimmy. That looks great. And don't ever ask your mom the truth sometimes. But it was just, they always think you're better than what you really are. And so I was pretty excited about this. You know, I put the, the rally rims back on it, had new rubber with white letter raced tires. I mean, it was, 
it was the bomb. I'm telling you, it just was. 16 years old, and you got a 66 Chevy Deuce Nova. I mean, it's, 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 so I was working at time, part-time in the summer at Kmart, and so I decided that, you know, I couldn't wait to drive it, so I parked that night and parked it out in the parking lot, and I parked it away from everyone. I didn't want any scratches on it. You know, I probably had it, one of those issues with cars, just a little bit. So I parked it out up, up high. One of the evenings when I was getting off work at five or so, or six or so, it was a Saturday, I walked out to the parking lot, and there was a guy that was parked beside me, and I noticed he was looking at my car. I was like, boy, he really likes it, I can tell. You know, it's like, <laughs> I painted it. <laughs> and I, he asked me, so he came walking, I said, is this your car? I said, yeah, 66 Chevy Deuce, yeah. Yeah, it is. He said, by the way, I- I'm impressed. He said, did you paint that with a brush? <laughs> Now, I might have been a little insecure in that moment. I didn't paint it with a brush. And, uh, and I said, no, I, my dad and I, we sprayed it. And he's trying to re- repel from that statement, just back away out of it. But it's one of those moments when I realized that um, someone can always do it better than you can. All that to say this. Saul should have never been threatened that David was getting the accolades of his own people because those people that were giving him accolades and singing songs about him were the same people that were, that were on his team, and it made his team stronger. But because of that, envy, jealousy would begin to creep into this man's life and would destroy the, the person that he was intended to be and the man he was supposed to become. I would say this way, when your identity is found in Jesus, you are not threatened by someone who can do it better than you. You can learn from them. You can put them on your team, make your team stronger. You can put them in positions where they are above you and you have to be okay with that. Now, throw this into the whole scenario about Saul in case you didn't know. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Hold your finger here in 17 and turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Saul, by the way, wasn't just a run-of-the-mill kind of guy. He was king, and it says this about him. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1 says this. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish. And then it says this in verse 2. Kish had a son named what? Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2. Kish had a son named Saul, the same Saul that's king now. As what? What's it say? As handsome a young man as could be what? Found. Now, dudes, have you ever had that said about you? It'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it? You're lying if you didn't think that would be kind of nice at some point in your life. Look what it says, as handsome as a young man could be found anywhere in Israel. In other words, he was the heartthrob of every Israelite woman. And it says this, and he was a head what? Taller than anyone else. So his appearance, physically, he should have had nothing. If his identity was in God let alone if his identity was in his looks, he had the looks. And not only that, he's head and shoulders above everyone. So when he became king and, and he wore his crown, he was, girls would say, he's a looker. Now, little David, who was a shepherd boy who barely arrived on the scenes, now kills the giant. This man who had everything is now threatened by this man that they're singing songs about. In fact, He gets a jealous eye with him. But meanwhile, don't forget, there's Jonathan who's supposed to be king. He becomes friends with David. Yet Saul's envy and jealousy of David would literally destroy his life. In fact, we know from chapter 18 and verse 4 and 5, look at verse 5, it says, verse 5, it says, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. But then this little tagline Saul didn't like to hear. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. 
his heart began to get clouded with envy. Verse 6, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with timbrels and lyres. But as they danced, they sang songs about Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. I've said this before, and we've looked at this account on, a, on another occasion for a different message. But when Saul walked out, he was used to getting all the accolades, people bowing down and singing songs about him. And you know, because his identity was misplaced in his achievements and his appearance and his accomplishments and things instead of God, he felt good about himself when people applauded him instead of the applause of God. And so they came. Instead of singing, Saul, Saul, he's our man, he can't do it, no one can, they sang, start singing the song, oh, Davy, he's so fine, he's so fine, he blew my mind. Hey, Davy, he knew he didn't like that song. And because his identity was in his accomplishments, he began to feel threatened by this little shepherd boy who now was on his team. You know what he does with him? He pushes him away from him. And he says, hey, hey, David, I'm tired of walking out and having the women sing about you. I'm shipping you away with a thousand other men. But what he neglected to realize is somewhere along the way, this prophet came to David, anointed him and said, you're going to be king of Israel. And there's nothing that Saul can do about it. How about Jonathan? Well, wait a minute. What about me, God? I'm the son of Saul. I got the looks just like dad has. I'm next in line. What about me, God? Why haven't I been given the spot? Why did you bypass me and give it to David? He's not even related. What about me? Don't I deserve this, God? Isn't what... This is what I've been created to do. I've waited all my life for this. And now you're going to bypass me and give it to someone I've never known until just recently? So Jonathan has to make a decision. Would he get envious? Would he be jealous? Or would he say, well, this must be the role that God has created from the foundation of the world for me to have. This is my role, and I'm going to be the best at this that I can ever be. That's not an easy position to take. But when you know that God has blueprinted your life from the foundation of the world, you can be the best at that and you can glorify God better there than trying to be someone that you weren't meant to be from the beginning of time. So watch what unfolds here. Envy, number one, by the way, think about this, is the art of counting the other's fellow's blessings instead of your own. And by the way, it's very difficult to enjoy what you sometimes have because we are always wanting what someone else has. Proverbs 14 and verse 30 says it this way, and this was Saul's problem. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. That's why Lucifer was thrown out of heaven. Why was he thrown out of heaven? I mean, when you really... Obviously, God knew from the beginning of time how that all would unfold. Obviously, God knew exactly. But when you really pull away and think about it, Lucifer had it pretty good before he got kicked out of heaven. But he wanted to be like God. Isn't that what Isaiah 14 and Exodus 28 says? And because of that, envy and sin entered heaven and he was booted out of heaven. Destruction came upon him because he wanted to be like God. Envy is clearly the flint that ignites evil in our hearts. And it apparently signals, I'm available to demons searching for a cheap date. Let Let me just say it this way. We must stop comparing ourselves to other people and trying to be like other people. You don't have to be like your brother. You don't have to be like your sister. You don't have to be like your roommate. You don't have to be, you don't have to be like that that husband or that husband or that wife or that wife or that teacher or that teacher or that preacher or that preacher or that carpenter or that welder or that singer or that musician, whatever it is, you just have to be what God's created you to be and do it well. 
He created you. He chose your race. He chose your skin color. He chose your hair or lack there of it. And he knows every detail of your body. In other words, your skills and abilities and personality traits have been uniquely given to you. You are perfectly designed to be the you that you are today. I love what happens, though, in, 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 in light of all that took place. Jonathan knew this to be true about his life. Jonathan knew that his role literally was to be second. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is very important in the midst of talking about these three guys. 1 Samuel chapter 17, and look at verse 13. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 13. It's interesting as as we think about his life. First, we know that Jesse had other sons. Then we know without a doubt that, that Jonathan knew his role. And he knew his role was one in which he had to be second. He knew it. He found it well. And, and the fact that he came to know that there were other brothers, that somehow that, that, that David was bypassed those brothers and he was made for this moment. And Jonathan knew that his role to David was to care for David. That's not an easy role to take, by the way. It just isn't. Here's what normally happens, though. Most of us want to be the next guy up. I'm convinced, though, and I, just take it for, a, when I look at NFL football, Often in NFL football, here's how it works. You go through a season, you see a, a winning team that wins well. And so coaches get fired from other teams. And so they get fired and they get tossed away. And so these teams begin to look for other coaches. You know where they begin to look? They begin to look at offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators and special teams coaches from winning teams. Here's what they're thinking is, wow, if I can get him who ran a good offense to now be head coach of my team, then we're a lot better off. However, that's not always the case, as it is in the workplace, too. It isn't the case that you take this person who's really genius at offense, make him the head coach. I've seen often, and you have too, where someone who's in that role as an offensive genius or defensive genius go to a head coach job and flop and do a miserable job. Why? Because maybe God made them to be an offensive genius and they're supposed to be as good as they can be in that role. And somehow in our minds, here's what's happened in America. We think that we need to get here to be where we finally arrive when in reality, this is just as level as this and this might be the best that you can ever be in this role and soar and fly in that position. You, have, you see it in businesses all the time. Someone works their way through a business, you know, they're good at sales. They're good at, good, good at with numbers. And so they begin their work their way up to the business, and they think, well, I got to get him up to the top. Let him become CEO. Let him become COO. And you know what often happens? They move this guy up because he's been successful here, and he gets up here, and he or she is a flop because he wasn't created or she wasn't created from the foundation of the world to lead in that position. But doggone it, they could lead here well. Here's the problem. We think that we have to be here when God says, I created you to be here, and this is just as level as that. Be as good as you can be here. Now, you get that one down. If, if you got any of what I was just trying to describe down, when you wake up every morning, you know, I've been created to be the best welder there is, and I'm good at it. And you know what? This is what God's created me to be, and I'm going to be the best that I can be at that. I don't need to be the boss on the assembly line. Maybe God didn't create you, but here's what God sees. He sees what you're doing just as valuable as what your boss is doing. And when you get that down, jealousy leaves the workplace. When you get that down, jealousy leaves the sports field. When you get that down, jealousy leaves the marriages. And when you get that down, you rejoice in either position and you celebrate together. Saul didn't get that down. Oh, listen to me, church. If you get anything, get this one down. You see, it's a trust issue. It's either we're saying, God, I believe that you had from the foundation of the world my best interests in mind. But America says, no, <laughs> you're not successful until you're the owner. You're not successful until you're number one at that. You're not successful until you're at the top. 
Well, maybe the top is the top of where you're at and you go soar and give everything that God has, all the abilities and talents, and you give your very best as if you're working for the Lord. That is success. Jonathan got this down. Jealousy has a way of slowly destroying the you you were made to be. Saul doesn't get this down. Look at chapter 18 and verse 8. Look what happened. Saul was very angry with this refrain. This refrain displeased him greatly. That song, oh, Davy, you should find, you should find, you blew my mind. Hey, Davy, he didn't like that. Either would you, probably. They were credited, they credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me, only thousands. What more can he get out of the kingdom? See the jealousy and the envy stepping in? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pen David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Why do you want to kill him? Because he was jealous. There's so much in me. He said, I wish I could just jump into the scenario and say, don't be jealous. You got by one of the best teammates in the world on your team. Let him soar. Let him get the honor and praise he deserves. God created him to be that way. Celebrate with those that celebrate. But jealousy doesn't allow us to do that. Part is because we're human beings and we have this flesh. And if your identity, if you got like a just, if there's just a little place that your identity is out of whack and you're trying to find it in your achievements or applause of man, then jealousy will just come in there. It's like having a date with a demon. They'll come right in there and they'll get a hook on your life and it will destroy you. It'll destroy your marriage. It'll destroy your workplace. It'll destroy everywhere that you go. I wish someone could have just taken Saul by the hand and said, hey, Saul, can we just kind of like go for a walk today? Hey, give me your hand, dude. Just go, come on, let's go for a walk. And let's just walk the perimeter of, of your palace and of your kingdom. Hey, do you know that you own all this? Do you know that that mountain, 27 miles across there, that one way over there, you see that way over there? Guess what? Guess who owns it? You do. Do you see who serves you every day? Do you realize you haven't cooked in years? Do you realize you have servants that will do anything for you? Do you realize, Saul, that not only that, that you got some pretty cool teammates that you got, some, you got some associates on your team. Boy, they know how to do it. You should celebrate that. But he just couldn't stand because his identity was in his achievements and not in his God. You see, the world is littered with insecure Christians who are lusting after someone else's accomplishment and trying to be like them instead of becoming the person God wanted them to be. I do see it all the time in marriages. I wish my husband was like him. The grass is so much greener. Oh, yeah, you probably should live like 10 days with that dude, and you'd soon find out it's not as good as he thinks he is. Oh, I wish my wife was like her. Like, every time I see her, she's like, she's all together. Well, you ought to see her. It's Monday morning at 6 a.m. when she's getting the kids out of bed. You see, instead of celebrating, we pin our eyes in the wrong direction and we end up being jealous jealous and angry and critical because we don't have what they have and we're not getting what they want instead of saying, all I need is Jesus Christ and that's enough. The second you feel a tinge of jealousy, you are in trouble. Saul's in trouble. He just is. Saul is about to lose some significant ground, and David is about to find purpose in his life. When success comes your way, by the way, don't run ahead of God either. Now, that's the warning for David. He's crowned king. They're singing songs about him, but he can't become king until Saul is dead or is gone. Now, think about that. Like, you know that this is what God has laid on your heart. This is what I've been made to be. Like, I've been preparing for this opportunity. And then someone says, hey, by the way, when that person's gone, you get that role. Or when this happens, you get that role. Here's what often happens to us. Like, we, we, we know that God has birthed this desire. I watch this happen in, with singles sometimes. Singles, though, I know I've been created, that God's given me a, a desire in my heart to, to be married. I know God, God's placed this desire. I don't want to be single. And so, this is the desire God's given you. You know what happens? Because I know that. Because I know that's what I'm made to be. Here's what happens. We push ahead of God. 
We're like, God, I don't need to wait any longer. It's like, you t- I, th- th- out of prayer and reading, I know I, I can't go any. And so we do, we push ahead and we pursue instead of wait upon God and we take the first available dude on the chopping block. You know what happens? You get into this marriage, oh, married. And then what happens after that? It, you are miserable because you pushed your agenda ahead of God's agenda. David could have did that, by the way. He could have knocked out Saul and said, hey, I'm king. God told me I'm king. See you, Saul. But he waited patiently for that dream to come true. He didn't push ahead with his own agenda. He waited patiently, even though he knew there will be a day. Pursue, but don't run ahead of God. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 23. I find it interesting. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 23. Meanwhile, Jonathan knows all this is going on. How will he respond to the middle position? 1 Samuel chapter 23. We'll look at verse 16 and 17. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Then he says this, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be what? King over what? And I will be what to you? Even my father Saul knows this. I gain a lot of respect for Jonathan. I honestly do. Because that's not an easy position to take. So what he says is, even my father knows that you're going to be king. He could have said, hey, dude, I'm supposed to be the king. I got the same last name as Saul, whatever that was. I got it. I'm next in line. Instead, you know what he does? This is what God has blueprinted from the foundation of the world, that I will serve you. And you know what? I'm okay with that. In fact, he says, I will be second to you. But you know what else he knew? He would be the best second there ever was on planet Earth. See, that's hard for us to accept, though. It's like, how come God, like, makes some kings and some second? You see, the problem is this. We somehow elevate one over the other. In God's eyes, one isn't elevated. We are fearfully and wonderfully made creatures of God, and he values us equally. It's identity issues. But I would say this, you be the best second that there ever has been. You be the best person in the marketplace that has ever been. You don't have to be number one, but be the best number two or number three or number four. Sometime we, at some point in our lives, we gotta get rid of jealousy and envy and understand purpose and understand that God has made some for this and some for that. He's molded as the potter does some for this, some for that, and all the sums are equal. Jonathan got it. I mean, how many times in scripture do you ever read that statement that says, I'm okay with being second to you? Rarely. How many times have you ever heard that in the marketplace? How many times have you, as bosses over people, had an assembly line person come up to you and say this, you know what, this is the position that God has placed me in. I'm gonna give you my best. Know this, I got your back and we're gonna win together. That's the spirit of a Christ follower. Meanwhile, David knew he was anointed to be king, but he must wait upon the Lord. By the way, that's just as hard in my mind. It's like, one day I'm going to be there. And there's probably days he probably walked around and he probably, when Saul wasn't there, he sat in the chair. <laughs> Seriously, if you knew you were going to be the king, you know that's what you've been cut from the beginning of time to be. It is sometimes more difficult or just not bullying your way there and knocking down people so that you can finally get here. I respect his ability to wait upon the Lord. By the way, he had an opportunity to knock out the king. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 24 on two occasions. 1 Samuel chapter 24, he had opportunities to knock out the king. 1 Samuel 24, look at verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. Do you understand? He's going in there to go to the bathroom. 
David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give you the enemy into my hands for you to deal with you as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut the corner off of Saul's robe. Now picture that scene. You don't have to use your imagination very much. Saul is relieving himself. David's in the back of the cave. He looks out ahead. I think that's Saul. Oh, this is my opportunity. I can become king now. I can sneak up and jam a spear right in his back. Because God said I'm going to be king. But then this little voice says, no. Those that wait upon the Lord, their strength shall be renewed. So you know what he did? Saul is going to the bathroom. That had to be quite a scene. I mean, he goes up and he cuts off his cloak, a corner of his garment. Saul doesn't even realize it. Then that day, on the other side of the mountain, David and him communicates, hey, Saul, while you were in the cave, guess what? Saul goes, He realizes he could have taken his life. And then on another occasion, look at 1 Samuel chapter 26. He didn't rush ahead of God. 1 Samuel 26. Look at verse 8. Abishai said to David, Saul was sleeping. Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he says, I, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and, and, and perish. But the Lord forbid that I lay a hand on him. So David took the spear and the water jug near Paul's, Saul's head and they left. And so here's the next scenario. He takes his water jug. Imagine that scene. Saul's on the other side while he was sleeping. David could have ran a spear through him. He could have rushed ahead and done his agenda. Could have made it happen because he knew he was going to be king. But this voice kept saying, no, not yet. No, not yet. Wait, wait, wait upon the Lord. And so Saul's on the other side. And, and, and David starts waving the spear. And he starts drinking his water cooler. Hey, that's my red and white thermos. It's got Saul and Sharpie on the outside. Saul realized that this was a man of God. You see, some of you want to shipwreck God's plan for you by running ahead of his timing for your life. By the way, that happens in a lot of ways. Oh, God, I got this one. I don't need you. This must be God. Oh, it must be God. Like, it just seems too real. It's like, it has to be. It's like, it has to be God. I'm not going to ask him. I just know it's God. And then that nauseous feeling in your gut from the Holy Spirit is saying, wait, and no. Oh, I just might have had bad pizza. We walk forward and we end up doing our will instead of his will and we shipwreck our lives too. Ultimately, David does become king. Saul's jealousy leads to his death. And Jonathan remains a faithful second to David. You see, you and I have been uniquely made to be the very best version that God has created us to be. By the way, there's great freedom in that. I don't have to be like you, and you certainly don't want to be like me. And there's freedom in that. But we are a chosen generation, and he has even called our church to be uniquely grace community. He has called our church to reach this community in a unique way. He's called our church to be grace community and not the next church. We don't have to lust after another church's accomplishments or their people because he's made us to choose to live out his will for us. And when we're not looking at other churches and trying to be like them and we're trying to be like us, there's freedom and power and there are wins in that. So, here's what God has made us to be. When you walked in, you received these goals. I'm going to ask you to pull those out. This is the us that God wants, I believe, us to be. And somewhere in the midst of these goals is the you that God's created you to be. And somewhere along the way, as we read these, you will, you will, you will hear from the Holy Spirit that said, boy, I should join that. Oh, I I could be part of that. Oh, 
That's what God's asking me. Oh, somehow, because I believe it's possible the Spirit bears witness with him and the Spirit is united. And somewhere in the midst, if you are a follower of Christ and connected to grace, you can make this happen because this is what Christ or God has made us to be. So stand with me. I'm going to read them. We'll close out our service by reading these. And I'm asking you to ask the Holy Spirit to prompt you. Say, I need to be involved there. I need to jump on board there. This is the church that we're longing to be this coming year. Create a culture where attendees are actively relying on the Holy Spirit to live up to their redemptive potential and no longer settle. See each attendee assist, help, invest in, and witness 500 people trust in Jesus as their personal Savior. Pride 250 to take the next step in their spiritual journeys and go public in baptism. Link arms with other people, ministry leaders nationally to take the message of Jesus to the world. Select carefully opportunities that come our way to present godly values to single people locally and globally in our world. Encourage, train, support, invest in ministry leaders across America with our Guts Conference. Bridge life-changing relationships with all the people who utilize our open gym and workout rooms. Develop a killer plan to take Fight Club to the world so thousands of men chase after Jesus. Jesus and lead their homes and workplaces the way God intended them to. Raise children that stand boldly in the mainstream of life for Jesus shamelessly. Release 10 short-term mission trips into dynamic, life-changing environments so they can come back with a fresh hunger to stay mobilized in their communities. Celebrate 500 women who completed the 40-day challenge and left their mark in a rich, deep, powerful way on their families and community. Build 500 fully trained fight club dude graduates that shamelessly and boldly stand in the workplace for Jesus. Our weekly giving need of 32K so that more people can be reached for Jesus. Believe that God can find a way to burn the mortgage so that nothing hinders our visions to reach the world for Jesus. Teach our children, youth, and adults to honor their mothers and fathers. Develop a hunger and appetite for sexual purity for each attendee. Secure the next venue, spot, service, step, or building that will allow us to continue to reach more and accommodate our growing church. Be there. When, five, when God answers five miraculous, in my lifetime, kind of prayer requests so that he gets greater glory. Equip every attendee of grace in a fresh way to battle not against flesh and blood, but in the spiritual realm so that Satan's chains are loose. Become a model, training ground, an example of Jesus-centered marriages that love and respect each other in a way that the world comes asking, what's up and how can I have that? Stir a fresh passion in our hearts to rescue orphans and care for the widows both globally and locally. Beg God to do five unplanned, unseen miracles in our midst this year. So unbelievable that people are left saying, only God. Find five strategic or find strategic ways to trend on Twitter and Facebook the good news of Jesus so that people curiously seek out Jesus and turn back to him. Station ourselves strategically so that every person that calls grace their home can come become a mooring point of hope for people far from God and see every attendee lead one person to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Implement new technology that connects us as a church better so that each attendee feels loved, recognized, and prayed for. Utilize technology in a fresh, new, and dynamic way to make our sermons available to anyone owning a tech gadget. Become the first church on planet Earth that has 100% volunteer participation. Destroy gossip, disunity, slander in such a way that it never enters the doors of our homes or the entrances of our church building. Transform ourselves in becoming the most generous church on planet Earth. Stave off the summer slump with ministry possibilities that, that people can stay away from, can't stay away from. Strengthen and build more volunteers to make a larger impact of hope with the incarcerated and transitional people of our community. Send, commission, five new couples into full-time ministry. Dispatch the blue crew in the streets of our county in a fresh, new, and exciting ways with powerful, love-touching blitzes. Strip ourselves of old habits and traditions that squash forward, move in our lives. Be open to any new thing that God brings our way that has not been budgeted or planned for and move quickly to adopt it. Beg God to allow us to secure more land so that we can facilitate dynamic, life-changing outdoor ministries in two unbelievable, not present, available spots. Create better touch points and connecting points with the rescue kids in Thailand and Cambodia so that they can become the world changers in their countries for Jesus and we know them better. Mobilize and send out 200 individuals on short-term missions and see that each attendee is stationed to join these teams if God calls them to do so by being passport owners. Create an atmosphere of worship that pushes back darkness, advances graces, 
closer to Jesus so that Jesus gets elevated to a whole nother level. Build the physically fittest group of Christians to ever walk on planet Earth so that we're not limited by how God wants to use us. Squash the spirit of I can't and replace it with I refuse. Be a mooring point of hope that people run to that need Jesus. Become the friendliest church on the cosmos. Produce dynamic teens that point their schools, communities, homes to Jesus in a shameless way. Raise up Children who chase after Jesus for the rest of their lives. Bridge the generations together in a fresh way so that life on life occurs and wisdom gets passed down. Shift our minds and thoughts to believe the best so that we can see the best, so that we don't tank our blueprinted future. Compose a greater, more significant, and deeper impact with college students within driving distance of grace so that this becomes their home church. Establish a greenhouse for fresh, dynamic, unheard of creativity that leaves people running to Jesus. Develop 250 regular for prayer encounter that pray us into the next move of God individually and corporately. Make fun, laughter, celebration, surprise, freedom, creativity, the unknown, joy, a winner's mentality, gratefulness, generosity, and faithfulness become core ingredients of our DNA. Set aside pride and the need to be right and charge forward as one unified team armed with the armor of God, fueled by the Holy Spirit so that the gates of hell are pushed back and the kingdom of God is advanced and souls are saved. Finally become the people Jesus made us to be and be ready at a moment's notice to do all the new things God has already planned for us to do that are not on this list, so be it. Anybody open to that this year? So God, I pray, I pray, Jesus, that this would be the year that we all jump in and we, we take our blueprinted future, our talents and abilities, and we unite arm to arm, back to back, shoulder to shoulder, and we advance the kingdom of God and we push back darkness in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.